0: <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Once again, talking to you from my car and now in a parking lot at some dental office in Ponte Vedra, Florida, Ponte Vedra, Florida. And um, I just sent off the G-file, it's 2.26 PM. I have to meet somebody in a little over an hour, so this one may be a little on the shorter side, I don't know. Um, I should get dispensed with the other formalities. Uh, The Remnant is brought to you by The Dispatch and thedispatch.com. You can go to thedispatch.com to find um, all sorts of stuff. My column, my my syndicated column regularly appears there. The G-File is always there, including the one that is only available to paid uh, subscribers, um, which comes out on Wednesdays. I've kind of given up not calling it the G-File because it just gets too confusing. You know, it's getting to like... I remember at one point there were like seven different titles for Spider-Man comics. There was the Spectacular Spider-Man. I think there was Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. There was the Amazing Spider-Man, which was the flagship. Um, And there were all these different things. And they were all just Spider-Man comics. So, you know, uh, maintaining the distinction between the syndicated column and the G-File is easy enough. But I think coming up with a third title for that other quote-unquote, newsletter Um, was just too much. So it's the Wednesday G-File. But I'll skip the Dear Reader gags for the most part then because I don't know if people know this, but the Dear Reader gag has become one of the true banes of my existence. And um, I hate having to come up with it. Um, I feel locked into it. But whenever I don't use it, um, which I will occasionally do on purpose for like a purely serious thing, um people get very annoyed with me because they've come to expect it. And so it's one of these few concessions I make um to just nakedly pandering to my most loyal readers. Um I should also say very excitedly this is the first uh <laughs> I guess we're calling this now the ruminant or the smoking car. Um this is the first one of these solo remnant things that as has an uh as an advertiser. Um Uh, This is one of the first, uh, this is the first of these solo ruminant smoking car solo G-File things that has an advertiser. Today's episode is sponsored by Hydrant. Uh, More about them in a little bit. Um, So, uh, today's G-File was in three parts. Um, The first was another terribly self-indulgent exposition on the differences between less and fewer and how even though there are vastly more serious ramifications of the pandemic and the economic downturn, um, one of the most vexing for me on a day-to-day basis is how the pandemic and how we talk about it has just completely nuked this distinction between less and fewer. Um, I won't get into all the details there because it's a kind of wacky thing. Um, The second part was about my Twitter spat with... uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, where she basically, uh, she did this, what I would say was fairly asinine response to a story that Bill Gates was going to try and raise billions more dollars to fight the coronavirus. And he's already personally spent vast gobs of money um, fighting the coronavirus and pandemics generally. Um, And as we all know, the reason why he's doing that is because once you take the Gates vaccine, as some fever swamp people are want to call it, um, you will then have uh, the Clippy, the paperclip um, help thing uh, permanently implanted in your brain. And that's what the founding fathers feared most. Um, anyway, so she mocked Gates, but she also said that um, this. she had this sarcastic tweet where she was like, Wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of fund that billionaires could give just a small percentage of their money to, to fund things like fighting pandemics and paying for infrastructure and all this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, the, the, the latest version of this constant refrain we get from her and from people like her that billionaires are total free riders, that the 1% are total free riders. They don't pay. Uh, their fair share and, and all of that. And, you know, look, fair share is a very subjective term and there are good arguments for raising taxes on billionaires. There are bad arguments for raising taxes on billionaires. Um, I kind of think that given all the spending that we've got um, accruing, that we might not have, we might have to revisit taxes in all sorts of ways to raise some of the revenue to pay this stuff off. I'm open to that on a, on prudential grounds, um, but if you start from the premise that billionaires don't pay anything, it's just demagoguery, and it's just not true. Uh, you know, the the richest one percent pay the largest portion of federal income taxes. Uh, the richest one percent pay more than the bottom ninety percent do in income taxes, and um, it's just sort of a way. You know, it's like who was that guy at the New York Times who said that. You know, we need to abolish billionaires. People think this is a serious idea that we should outlaw billionaires, which is just crazy. You know, in the grand scheme of things, we want more billionaires. We want lots of billionaires. And, you know, it kind of reminds me, my dad, he was the first person to ever say this to me. He said, you know, look, there is nothing in economics that says everybody can't be rich. Um, It's just that some people are going to be more rich than other people. And I don't want to get into a big, you know, another plug for my book, Suicide of the West, now out in paperback, but by almost any definition, you know, not counting maybe homeless people and uh, a few other examples of the extreme poor, but even there, I'm not sure that's true. The average American is, in terms of the resources they have at their disposal, the quality of their diet, um, is a millionaire by historical standards. Uh, I know I've talked about this before. I feel like I've talked about everything before on this thing. Um, but, uh, uh, my friend, Kevin Williamson always likes to point out, and there's a scene in the Count of Monte Cristo where the protagonist wants to really impress people by how rich he is. And he, so he serves at a dinner party, two kinds of fish. And that is supposed to be this unbelievably extravagant thing for, for a rich person to do. Well, I mean, look, I mean, the, the, you know, your typical blue-collar person can afford um, under normal circumstances, you know, as of, let's say, as of January of this year, your normal blue-collar person could very easily afford serving more than two kinds of fish at a party. And no one would say, because he had halibut and tilapia or something, that, oh, he's a rich guy. Um, But, you know, it just shows you how the definition of poverty, like the definition of wealth, is a highly subjective thing. And anyway, so I got into a spat with her on Twitter, and then I carried it on to the G-File. And um, uh, it's just one of these things, I know I should not take my cues from Twitter. We try really hard not to do that at the dispatch, but you know, every now and then it just gets in your head. And besides, the G-File is kind of immune to a lot of the normal rules. Um, and then the last thing was about um, a kind of argument that I really can't stand. Um, it was. I was a little dismaying to see at the bulwark, which I don't dislike. There's a lot of stuff at the bulwark I like. I just plug um, uh, Jonathan Last's stuff that, uh, in the Wednesday G file. Um, but there's a every now and then there's this tendency to sort of um, morph to sort of absorb liberal arguments. Um, because they're useful as a cudgel against Trump and Trumpism. And obviously my views on Trump are well known, but um, that doesn't mean that grabbing, you should grab every argument available off the shelf um, to use them, because some of the arguments that you can use against Trump um, aren't specific to Trump. They're just sort of these broadsides against conservatism and whatnot or the Republican party. And I don't think they're necessarily always right. And so Richard North Patterson has this piece about how Republicans are anti science and I've always been anti science and conservatives have this unique problem with science. And I talked about this a little bit, um, on the, the remnant I did with, um, Paul Matzkoff, uh, or Matsko about the paranoid style in American politics, which was this argument that was put forward by Richard Hofstetter, who I think was a brilliant writer and had some amazingly interesting insights. But he was, I would argue, kind of heavily infected by um, a style of argumentation and an ideological approach that comes somewhat from the Frankfurt School Marxists. And um, it caused him to basically point at things that he disliked about the quote-unquote right and pretend that they were unique to the right when in fact they're more natural to human beings and natural to politics generally or certainly natural to american politics and so for example you know there's a there's a paranoid you know there is a paranoid style in american politics there's also a paranoid style in virtually every other country around the world and you know if if you know anything about the turks or the pakistanis or the iranians um or even the french um, we're kind of pikers when it comes to coming up with crazy conspiracy theories about stuff Um, but anyway, there's a, there is an anti-science thing on the right. Um, it, I don't think it defines the right. I don't think it is definitional in any way, shape or form to the right, at least the right properly understood. But sometimes it flares up, you know, sometimes people start freaking out about fluoridated water or whatever, um, or vaccines. And, and sometimes that happens a lot on the right. And sometimes that happens a lot on the left. The idea that being anti-vaxxer Um, or that some people on the right are going anti-vaxxer, which I find absolutely deplorable and, and, and dangerous, um, uh, on the merits. Uh, but that's not, you know, where who gave the most oxygen to the anti-vaccination stuff over the last 25, 30 years. It wasn't from the right. It was like from guests on Oprah and, um, and a lot of the biggest hotspots for, uh, things like measles and whatnot come from decidedly left-wing communities in Southern California or or New York State or wherever. Um, This this tendency to sort of think that um, science is dangerous and not to be trusted manifests itself all over the place. I remember for years I used to write about um, golden rice, which is this genetically modified rice, it's much richer in vitamin A, that if we could get uh, poor people in places like India and Africa to eat it, to you know, switch out normal rice for this rice, it could cure, you know, it could, I can't remember the numbers, but you know, it could cure huge amounts of blindness and kids. And the foremost opponents to it were on the left. I mean, I think all the opponents to it were on the left because they just were anti-science, to borrow a phrase, when it came to things like genetically modified foods. During the primaries, there was this, you know, just this year, and I've written a bunch about this, but, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, they would all say that global warming or climate change poses an, um, uh, an existential threat, that it's an extinction-level level, of, level um, crisis for, the, for humanity, which it just flatly isn't. You know, we had my friend Ron Bailey on here last week, and Ron takes climate change quite seriously. He wants a carbon tax and all that kind of stuff. But he'd be the first person to tell you that it is not going to wipe out humanity or anything like that. But the thing is, if you believe it is, if you actually believe it even going to come close to wiping out humanity, then you should, and that you, you're grounding that in your almost religious uh, invocation of the infallibility of existing science, Um then why the hell are you anti-nuclear power? I mean, it's just insane. I mean, I always like to analogize it to like if, 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 if astronomers and astrophysicists identified a meteor that was heading to planet Earth and there was, you know, it would be a dinosaur level, um, extinction level, you know, existential crisis for humanity if it, if it hit us, um... You would say, okay, let's do everything we can to avoid this. And you might talk about sending rockets out there to divert it. There are all sorts of interesting theories about what to do. And one of them is deploy just massive numbers of nuclear weapons at it or build a nuclear weapon that is so powerful that it could just obliterate it or cut it into significantly small chunks that they would disappear in the atmosphere. Those all seem like reasonable things to explore. Um... But if you said, no, 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 we have to keep nuclear off the table. Nuclear is just too terrible. You would be anti-science and you would be, for want of a less scientific term um, or a more scientific term, a moron. And if you actually believe that climate change is the threat that you claim it is, to just simply say that, as Bernie Sanders does, that not only can we not use nuclear, but we have to mothball our uh, existing nuclear power plants... I no longer take you seriously as sa- when you talk about climate change. You know, you're the anti-science person there. If you just say, "Oh, nuclear power is icky," and there's no way for scientists to do it safely, you're, you know, you're the anti-science per- person, and that's true across just this vast array of issues. Where, you know, look up until five minutes ago, if you said men can get pregnant, you, you know, you know, and you weren't making an art, you know, an Arnold Sh- Schwarzenegger movie. Um, you'd be, you know, laughed out of the room. But now, because politics distorts um, what we consider to be sound science, you are basically shunned and, and demonized if you say that men can't get pregnant. And, you know, and the point here is not to say that all the transgender stuff breaks one way and the right is right about everything and the left is wrong about everything and all that, but it's a political question. And the same thing goes with a lot of these questions. You know, I mean, I've made this point a million times about Donald Trump's polling. There's a lot of polling out there that's very supportive of Donald Trump. It's not as supportive as, he's, as he claims. But I just know that a lot of the people who tell pollsters that they thought his phone call with Ukraine was perfect and all of these various things, they don't necessarily believe it. I mean, some do. But a lot of them just simply know that if they tell the, some pollster from the New York Times or whatever or the fake news, um, that Trump is wrong, they feel like they're giving a, uh, a political weapon to people they can't stand. And so they know when people are, are sophisticated about this stuff now. And so they give the answers that they understand in the political context are the answers that, um, buttress their side or, um, support the framing of the issue the way they want. And so one of the reasons why you're like, uh, anti- Um, vaccination stuff is more prominent on the right over the last five or eight years or something like that, it used to be much more prominent on the left, is that the way the issue is framed is now about parental rights. And, you know, I'm, I think vaccines are important and necessary, but I also think parental rights are important or necessary. And I understand that there's a trade-off there about, you know, these things and people are afraid of slippery slopes that if they say that You can force certain medical treatment on your kids. What else are they going to force? And so I don't think that every single person who has an anti-vaxxer response in a poll, the way Richard North Patterson uses it, is necessarily saying they don't believe in the science. It's just that they are contextualizing these things in different ways. And you find this kind of stuff all over the place. I guarantee you there are lots of women out there who are pro-choice who um, say they don't believe that life begins at conception, or they don't believe that uh, uh, late-term abortions end a human life, who actually, in their gut, believe that those propositions are, in fact, true. They just understand that if they say they're true, it lends um, political power to the people that they oppose, who want to restrict abortion rights. Um, But no one ever calls those people anti-science. And so my point here is not is simply to say that, like, first of all, it's complicated what actually people mean by anti-science. It's, it's, it's very contextual. Um, but also just simply that, like the paranoid style, it manifests itself uh, across a political spectrum in different ways and at different times. And because it's sort of an American thing to distrust experts. You know, this is sort of my point about the mask stuff. There's part of the anti-mask thing that I kind of like you know, this sort of immediate suspicion of, of, um, you know, groupthink or orders from technocrats and experts with the federal government and all of that kind of stuff. I'm generally pretty positive about that part of the American character that rejects sort of uh, blind and unquestioning uh, support for what elites tell them. But sometimes that tendency can be really stupid. And I think a lot of the stuff with the anti-mask stuff is really stupid. And, uh, I guess that, that gets me to, um, uh, Rust, my friend, Rusty Reno. And I say my friend, I don't mean it because I've never met him and I have very, very little desire to, um, you know, earlier this week, he had a series of truly asinine tweets that, um, argued that, To wear a mask is uh, cowardice. Um, And it's not just cowardice for, you know, if it's driven by a fear of getting the virus. This prominent Catholic intellectual editor of the Catholic journal First Things actually says that it is cowardice to um, fear giving other people the infection. And I just I think that's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I mean, that is just freaking bizarre to me that. That. Um, if you think there's even a chance you're, uh, that you have the virus and you're asymptomatic, so you don't feel sick or anything like that. And so therefore you think it's manly to go walking around an old age home or something like that, or get on a plane. Um, uh, even if you think there's a, even a trivial chance that you might infect people, uh, to say that that's 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 courage or manliness is nuts. You know, the old definition of manliness, as John Podoretz pointed out on the episode of Glop the other day, was to make personal sacrifices um, for the greater good for others. And, you know, I'm pretty sure there's something about that kind of stuff in Catholicism, um, you know, about... Uh, caring about the most vulnerable, the least among us, uh, treating strangers as if they were your brother. I mean, I, 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 I bet if I spent a few minutes, I could come up with some quotes about that. I'm pretty com- confident. And so this this sort of macho, beer-muscly, don't-wear-masks-if-you're-a-real-man stuff, I just think is grotesque and dumb. And so that's what the Wednesday G-File thing was about. And... Um, Um, since then, uh, Reno deleted the tweets and then he deleted his account. And, you know, while I'm against cancel culture, I can't really, you know, uh, uh, shed any tears about all of that. Um, and maybe I'll even take a little pride. I mean, again, as I've said elsewhere, uh, it's a little personal for me because he's written some really asinine stuff about me. He had this thing where he had this completely... Intellectually dishonest, uh, right, not as dishonest as some people, like uh, Michael Doran at, at the Hudson Institute, but uh, you know, Doran just literally made up stuff in my book. I mean, literally fabricated what I I had written um, as an effort to, you know, defend Trumpism or that crazy person at OAN. Um, anyway, uh, Reno, um, because I supposedly typify uh, the. The dead, old consensus of conservatism, which held that limited government and free markets were good things, um, he says that I am the. I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was something like, "I am the symbol of of the decadence of our political classes," and he's writing this to provide this sort of, you know, glorified thumbsucky eggheadosphere um, rationalization for Trump and Trumpism. And I just, you know, I, I can't help but like take it a little personally, or at least an affront to my intelligence that you can, you know, talk about how I'm decadent, um, and sort of dumb and immoral for defending these things that pretty much every conservative of any stripe defended as of three years ago, um, as, uh, in, in part to elevate, um, this new sort of notion about what he calls the strong gods and the needs for nationalism and all that. And that's one of the things I find so perplexing about this is that if you'd read his stuff and if you read a lot of these first things types, um, in the last few years, the whole argument, you know, it's why he thinks I'm a fool for criticizing the new deal. Um, the whole argument was that we need to move beyond limited government and classical liberalism that's why we call it post-liberalism is the stuff that these guys are proposing and the the argument was that we need to sort of unify around strong government that imposes you know the highest good as Sorab puts it um, that we need to inculcate from above a, you know this sort of nationalist politics that we're all in it together and then here we have literally the best opportunity for that kind of politics in our lifetimes. I mean, not since world war two, every other war, you know, most people didn't fight. Most people really weren't involved in the war effort because we haven't had total mobilization since world war two. Um, uh, this is the first time where every single person is affected. Every single person has a certain amount of responsibility towards their fellow man. Um, that's very conducive to Catholic social doctrine about caring for others, caring about the weak, being pro-life. Um, I mean, how many thousands and thousands of pieces were written about the, the, the moral imperative of keeping Terry Schiavo alive um, 15 years ago um, when this woman was, and I was basically supportive of all that, but um, uh, you know, this woman was in a persistent vegetative state She um, had no quality of life to speak of, and her husband wanted to pull the plug, and the rest of her family didn't. And, you know, you had people like, you know, my friend, and I'm sincere here when I say my friend, Bill Bennett, arguing that, you know, basically Jeb Bush should defy a court order and uh, be happy to risk impeachment for defying the legislature, for breaking the law in order to protect this one woman's life. And now people like Reno and all these people are are blasé about the fact that I think as of today we're at eighty four thousand deaths, and I'm not against reopening the economy. I'm not. I mean, I get it, and I, I think we should do it on a rolling basis where appropriate. All that stuff. I'm basically on board with that. That stuff. I am not. This we you know. I agree that the point of flattening the curve wasn't to get us to a cure or to prevent any deaths. The point of flattening the curve was to prevent hospitals from being overrun, and it kind of sounds like we've done that, so we need to move on, just simply because it's not sustainable to keep the whole economy in a coma, as it were. And so I, I agree with on the policy stuff and all of that, but I am just flummoxed by how, you know, people are, are, are have become almost macho and blasé about the deaths that this will accru- accrue, particularly among the old and, you know, the weak and the vulnerable and the the the, the people who are in much better shape than Terry Chavo, um, they just don't want to even give any rhetorical weight. I'm sure they care about these deaths. I'm sure even Reno cares about these deaths, but they'd rather wear on their sleeve this macho BS stuff and turn this into a culture war fight when it really just doesn't need to be. And that's sort of how I ended the the Wednesday G-File thing, is that, you know, for most of my life I thought, you know, I'm pretty much a culture war kind of guy. I, you know, I've been involved and I've written at length, you know, read the, the underrated tyranny cliches. There's all sorts of stuff about the culture war there and how, you know, the right is basically on defense in the culture war and the real oppressors, the real people who are trying to impose their values on people are the left. And they've done this time and time again. And then whenever the, you know, conservatives or traditionalists or whoever fight back, they all of a sudden change their rhetoric to, um, who are you to impose your values on me? And what they really mean is you should just lie back and take it while we impose our values on you. So I'm, I'm, I'm with the culture warriors on most of the issues of the last 30 years to one extent or another. I've kind of, I've made peace with gay marriage. I was in favor of, you know, contract rights that gave you all the, the, all the stuff that people cared about in terms of gay marriage or claimed to care about in gay marriage. Um, I would have preferred that, but I also, I no longer really care about the issue very much. I don't think it's turned out to be a disaster. And I think that marriage in this country has much bigger problems than, um, gay marriage. And there's a certain benefit. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, who I've locked horns with for years, you know, was kind of right about how it's better to provide a bourgeois institution for gay people than to lock them out of it and then condemn them for behavior that they, um, that, that, um, was their only other option if they weren't allowed to have sort of bourgeois married lives. I mean, I, I, anyway, I've changed my mind on the gay marriage stuff. But on most, but for a lot of time, I was all in on that fight too. But at least those were like real issues. The weird thing here is how this mask stuff has turned, it should not be, does not lend itself logically to a culture war issue. And if you were, and as a bunch of us have been pointing out, if you actually want to open the economy, the mask wearing should be an ingredient of that, should be one of the tools to do that. You're not going to get people to be feel comfortable at a lot of restaurants and bars and coffee shops and shopping malls and department stores and all those kinds of places. If the employees aren't wearing masks, if the other shoppers and customers aren't wearing masks, um, you can say that's all irrational, but it's just a fact is that people, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to infect their families. They don't want to get infected themselves and wearing the mask is a social cue. And so you would think it would be part of the argument for the people who want to open up the economy, but instead, because there's so many people who just seem addicted to the, the culture war, they care more about having the culture war than winning on the issues of the culture war to the extent that they're actually inventing culture war issues that make no sense as culture war issues. And I find that really bizarre. And, um, that's one of the reasons why I really distrust, um, so much of the, um, the, the sort of rusty Reno post-liberal stuff. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting crazy dry mouth because I smoked so many cigars. And um, that's probably a good reason for me to hydrate. So let me talk about hydrant for a second. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. And these help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant, D-R-I-N-K, H Y D R A N T dot com and enter promo code Dingo for twenty-five percent off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code dingo, D-I-N-G-O. I thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So um, where was I? Oh, the the first things crowd. So um, this post liberal stuff. You know, as I, we talked about last week with, uh, with social justice and the need for abstract rules that apply equally to everybody, um, there, is, uh, th- there is inherent to so much of the argumentation from Sorab and Reno and these other people that um, that system, that way of thinking about the things, things rigs the game against us in part because the left won't play by the same rules. And I get that the left won't play by the same rules. I've spent my entire life criticizing the left for not playing by those rules, but that's not necessarily an argument for giving up the rules themselves. Um, There's a great scene in A Man For All Seasons where um, William Roper talking to to, uh, Sir Thomas More says, so now you give the devil the benefit of the law? And Thomas More says, yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? And Roper says, yes, I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And More says, oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law's all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, Do you really think that you could stand upright in the winds that blow then? Yes, I'd give the the devil the benefit of the law for my own safety's sake. This is sort of the point. Um, This idea that because the left sees politics as just a form, or I shouldn't say the left because I don't think this is true of everybody on the left, Um, but the, the sort of the tribal cartoon version of the left You know, that's the argument is that the left only cares about power. And look, I I sincerely believe the left is very power oriented. I've been making this argument that ever since the introduction of philosophical pragmatism into American liberalism, they've been using um, arguments about process, the constitution and law in ways just simply to aggrandize power for themselves. I think it's a very serious thing. I don't want to denigrate it. I don't think it's true of everybody, though, Um, but I do think it's a very real thing. But here's the thing: is that if, if you say, okay, we have to be like that too, then basically what you're saying is, is that all politics is just a contest about power. And this is what we were sort of talking about with the Julia Benda stuff last week as well. Um, and if you, if you do that, then you have to, you know, look. I mean, I would, would I rather live in a country that was governed by, you know, the right wing authoritarians? Um, Uh, Are the right-wing post-liberals rather than the left-wing post-liberals? Sure. Yeah, I'd rather not live in either, though. And the problem that you get yourself into is if you say all politics is just contests of power, if you go um, full Carl Schmitt on all of this and that, you know, the rule of law and all of these institutions and these notions about abstract ideals that are universally applied, if you think that's all a con and really it's just about powering through and winning, um, you have to demonstrate to me that your side can actually win. Um, Because if you can't win, then what you're really saying is we should denude all of these rules of any moral binding power on the other side, and they will pocket those concessions and then do the very same thing back at us. And, you know, obviously I think this has relevance for the Trump stuff, but I know I'm supposed to have all these Trump derangements syndrome, blah, blah, blah. So I won't get into all of that. But just on a broader scale, post-Trump, if the post-liberal side says that, you know, you know, like the sort of Adrian Vermeule uh, turn, turn to the, the glorious example of 14th century France as the better paradigm stuff, if we give into all of that, Um, we're going to lose. You know, let's just assume I'm completely sympathetic to all that. I'm not, but let's just assume I am. Most Americans aren't going to go for that. Uh, Most voters aren't going to go for that. The people who control the most powerful institutions in this country aren't going to go for that. But they will say, thank you very much for saying that none of these restraints on our will to power apply anymore. And they'll do that back at us. And this is just, and this is the story of of you know the 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 counter enlightenment going back three hundred years, and or the anti enlightenment, you know, and it takes all sorts of different forms. Um, we're all products to the enlightenment, including most of the counter enlightenment people. I mean, to Vermule's credit, he's and to a certain extent, Patrick Denine's, they want to go back to pre enlightenment paradigms to some extent or another, um, but and they think the enlightenment was a mistake, but you know, practically most of those arguments actually take the form of sort of, uh, you know, categorically thinking like you're like in the enlightenment, but just one power. And I'll give you an example. Um, I talk about this in the tyranny of cliches, the underrated tyranny of cliches. Um, we get the word ideology, um, from the philosophes, these French intellectuals and, and, um, And originally ideology was just simply supposed to be, um, the study of ideas, right? Biology, bio means life. Biology was the study of life. Zoology, animals or whatever, study of animals. Ideology was originally understood to be the study of ideas. And a lot of the original philosophers, including this guy, what's his name? Um, the guy from Say's Law, Frederick Say, can't remember what his first name was, um, uh, they were classical liberals. They were the original, at least European classical liberals, sort of the uh, comrades in arms of the American you know classical liberals. And what they wanted were clear, universally applicable laws that applied to everybody. Um, they saw economics as this realm of the expression of personal freedom, where you know, the fruits of your labor belong to you and that, Um, you should be free to, um, be entrepreneurial. In fact, um, say, uh, God, what, what is his first name? I'm going to try and look it up here. Uh, Jean Baptiste say, uh, came up with this thing, say's law, which I cannot for the life of me explain to you here, but he's also the guy who invented the word entrepreneur. And he was, um, uh, like Adam Smith's greatest popularizer in continental Europe and, say was one of the original ideologues. And the meaning of ideologue back then was the study of ideas, but it was also associated with these classically liberal ideas about universal human rights and free markets and all and democracy and limited government and and you know the sort of Montesquieu stuff about divided power and you know, uh, how you needed to have uh, separated powers in order to live a, a to live in a free society, all that stuff. The ideologues were deeply associated with all of that, and Napoleon was um, an ally in the beginning with the um, with the ideologues, with these philosophers, and um, but he was an ally with them because they were useful for a while as um, weapons or as shock troop intellectual shock troops against. His enemies, right? Because these were the opponents of monarchy. These were the opponents of uh, absolutism, monarchical absolutism, right? Divine right of kings and all of that kind of stuff. You know, this is that point that I I keep coming back to about Hayek, that Hayek makes, that liberalism was originally the rebellious thing. Liberalism was originally um, the freedom fighter thing. And it had all of the cool, all the coolness associated with that. And then in that sort of a blink of an eye, it goes, it's sort of like that Batman line about, you know, uh, die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Um, uh, liberalism all of a sudden came to define the status quo and Manchester liberalism and, um, the industrial elites and all that kind of stuff. And the new rebels were socialists. So all of a sudden, because the rebels always have to be considered of the left, which is really dumb. Um, liberalism became, um, this sort of uh, became perceived as the bastion of reaction and the powers that be and the real rebels now were the socialists. And as I've argued a bunch of times here, um, that's horse hockey because the socialists were in fact reactionary, um, in the real meaning of the word and that they wanted to restore pre-enlightenment understandings about, um, economics and all of these things. They may not necessarily have liked monarchy, but they didn't like, the, uh, they didn't like these Lockean or Adam Smithian ideas about freedom and, um, and liberty and all of that stuff. So anyway, Napoleon starts out an ally of these guys because they're very useful against his other political enemies, the more conservative crowd. Um, sort of like my old joke about libertarians is that they're incredibly useful to unleash on your enemies, but you would never want one on the throne um sort of like the way english kings used the irish anyway um uh napoleon turns on the ideologues when he's consolidating power and all of a sudden he changes the meaning of ideology and he says you see the ide- the ideologues are um um uh, they're hidebound they're closed-minded they don't take reality into account um There, You know, it's it's very much the modern use of ideologue as an epithet. And the person who did the most to popularize that was, in fact, um, Karl Marx. He has this long riff about Napoleon being right about the ideologues and blah, 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 blah. And, um, but what Napoleon was arguing for was essentially what we would call pragmatism and technocracy, where he should just simply be in charge. He's the only person who knows... Um, how to run things and he should rule with what, you know, uh, Locke would call arbitrary power. Um, But it was also infused with the cult of expertise. I mean, Napoleon was very good about creating bureaucracies, imposing the Napoleonic Code and all of these various things. And um, he basically demonized the ideologues and turned them into what people accuse, you know, what left-wingers accuse the Cato Institute of being, of sort of living in this fantasy construct about how the world should work without taking in, you know, the facts on the ground. And this is why I've always defended ideology rightly understood. Um, you know, uh, there's this guy, famous guy in the history of intellectual conservatism, um, Eric von Knut ledin Um, He's one of the coterie of cape-wearing conservatives from the old days. And fascinating guy. His book, um, An Intelligent American's Guide to Europe. My dad made me read it when I was 16. Um, Anyway, you know, Ledeen makes this point that um, people say this stuff about ideology as if it's some sort of brainwashing kind of religious orientation, you know, this hard dogma and doctrine. And I just don't think that's what ideology is rightly understood at least. Um but there's a v- strong current of this in American conservatism. Uh, H Stewart Hughes um had this line that Russell Kirk liked to quote a, lot, quote a lot uh that conservatism is the negation of ideology. And by that he was talking about this sort of, you know, the ideology of bolsheviks or uh, french revolutionaries right this reality denying kind of ideology and ladin says you know that's a perversion real ideology is just simply uh, it's a it's a checklist of your principles it's a it's it's your it's your acknowledged priors right i would i would you know much rather deal with somebody who is honest about what their checklist is right and so my checklist has things like, um, I'm in favor of expanding free- freedom and limiting government. Um, I'm ex- in favor of, um, the free market. And that doesn't mean I'm in favor of those things in every circumstance everywhere. As I've been saying constantly, a pandemic is one of these times, which is sort of a great exception to a lot of my ideological priors. And that was something that was understood by the founding fathers, you know, the, you know, George Washington had mandatory inoculations of his troops in the Revolutionary War. People would quarantine, you know, the founders would quarantine cities um, for smallpox and yellow fever. You know, the, your ideology doesn't require you to put your thinking on hold. It just requires you to bring to bear a checklist of the of the things that you value. And what has always bothered me and is really the sort of the theme of tyranny cliches is this notion that conservatives who acknowledge their dogma who acknowledge their ideology are somehow close-minded and um uh dogmatic in the bad sense of the word while liberals who do not acknowledge their priors who do not acknowledge their ideological stuff and they claim to be just driven by the data right they just go where the facts tell them they're parts of the reality-based community um paul krugman had that asinine line about how um, you know, uh, facts, facts just have a liberal bias or whatever, right? Um, that's nonsense. That's real dogma. Real dogma is those things you take for granted and don't question anymore. And there's nothing inherently bad with dogma. Um, there's a lot of good dogma out there. Um, I am dogmatically opposed to pedophilia. I really don't want to hear your arguments for the great exceptions for why you should, you know, in certain circumstances, you should have sex with kids. I'm just, I have a zero tolerance dogmatic position on it. I am dogmatically opposed to torturing puppies. I'm dogmatically opposed to, um, premeditated unjustifiable homicide. Right. Um, and I don't want to live in a society that doesn't have those kinds of dogmas in it. So there's nothing wrong necessarily with being dogmatic, but there is something wrong with not understanding your actual dogma, of not knowing it and acknowledging it and being aware of when it can steer you awry. And, um, and so, you know, Ledeen makes this argument. He says, look, if you, if you look up, particularly in European dictionaries, um, the definition of ideology and the definition of Weltanschauung, right, which just means worldview, um, they mean the same thing. They're basically syn- synonyms. I don't trust people who don't have a worldview. Um, You should have some kind of worldview. We think conceptually. If you don't think conceptually, um, you're just going to be, you're going to take, it's going to be impossible for you to distinguish the signal from the noise. You're going to take every random and chaotic fact and development and not filter it out. And you'll be lost. It's what William James, who I have my problems with William James, he's a brilliant guy, you know, you said, people who don't think conceptually just encounter the world as a big blooming, conf- blooming, buzzing confusion or something like that. And, um, and so I'm very much in favor of people having ideologies. I just think they should acknowledge them. And one of the things I've always loved about the right, um, at least until recently, was that we had, you know, we had big arguments about our ideological differences and about where the trade-offs are between competing principles. You know, um, uh, the great fusionism debates, and I wrote the, the f- new forward to the ISI book, um, What is Conservatism, a few years ago, and it's one of my favorite books. It's kind of like, the I, I think I say in the, the piece, it's like the, um, the liner notes to intellectual conservatism or the, the Federalist Papers of Intellectual Conservatism. And then the book is all about, you know, these trade-offs. I think one of the original titles of what is conservatism was like liberty and virtue or something like that. The whole point of fusionist conservatism is to understand that, you know, liberty and order, um, uh, morality and freedom, that these things are in conflict. And we're constantly trying to figure out in specific instances where these competing goods interact and where the trade-offs are that's what i like about conservatism that's what i like about conservative ideology and but the problem so getting back to the napoleon stuff what napoleon basically said is no 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 you can't have these abstract rules um these abstract it's very very much like a postmodern leftist thing right it is and it's very much like what the the progressives like william james and john dewey and horace kalin and um Eli um, uh, what's his name? Um, Richard Eli or Eli? I never remember which way you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, they basically, and Walter Lippman, they basically argued um, they were all pragmatists. You should really read the Metaphysical Club. Um, they were, um, they argued that all philosophy, all ideology, was basically a con. To protect your own self-interest. I mean, I'm I'm being grotesquely simpli- simplistic here, but that's the gist of it, and that um, it's sort of like Charles Beard's indictment of the American revel- of American founding, where he paints the Constitution as sort of like this um, this ruse for rich white land owning males. It's very much like the 1619 stuff, to be honest. Um, that all of it was a con job and marketing to defend their rank self-interest. And I just, I reject that entirely. I'm not saying that there weren't founding fathers who liked the system they were coming up with because it protected their interests. I'm sure that was the case in some cases. But, um, you know, the ideas of classical liberalism um, are more than simply that. And um, but so what, what Napoleon and the progressives and the pragmatists Um, did is they basically said, um, we're the only ones who are driven by the facts. We're the only ones who know what is right. And therefore, the people who disagree with us, their arguments are illegitimate, they're selfish, they're dishonest, and all of the rest. And um, one of my ideological priors is that you need liberal rules, right? I mean, I'm, I'm against illiberalism, of all flavors. I'm against right-wing illiberalism. I'm against left-wing illiberalism. And, you know, I'm not just against it the way Charlie Cook sometimes talks about it as a way to keep people from killing each other. I mean, look, I mean, I know that Charlie likes liberalism for other reasons too. um, But liberalism is also, I believe, morally superior. You know, and again, I'm talking about classical liberalism. Liberalism is morally superior to all the other systems that we have come up with. You know, the idea that somehow um, a junta of generals or a junta of intellectuals or a junta of post-liberal Catholic integralists or a junta of, um, you know, campus leftists can decide how to allocate resources and design life for people in a democracy better than the the people themselves i think is immoral and illegitimate but it's also just a really dangerous idea because if you give up your adherence to that, to 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 those rules you're basically letting um you're you're giving a free pass to the other side to think that way too and then we're really toast um, we may, you know, we may win some battles and we may lose some battles, but basically every election is therefore a culture war election and each side wants to impose its vision on the entire country. When I want to live in a country where, um, there may be governments imposing their vision on people, but it's done at the local level. And so you can have some people living like free love hippies at Ashbury, and you can have some people living like, uh you know, John Lithgow's town in Footloose, and so be it. At minimum, it would make it a more interesting country to, dr- to drive across. Um, where was I? I, I got to get out of here. But um, one last point, which I think is kind of funny, and I've been talking to Charles about it offline. So, you know, I had Charlie Cook on here uh, a week or two ago, and a bunch of people have sort of taken this position. I keep getting this weird argument on Twitter that like Charlie ate my lunch and he ran circles around me and all of that kind of stuff. And I just think it's really funny. Um, cause look, I mean, first of all, I, I love Charlie. Charlie's a brilliant dude. I have no problem believing that he's smarter than me. You know, everyone gets bumps up a letter grade whenever you speak with an English accent, but Charlie's affirmatively a brilliant dude and, and, and a profoundly decent guy as well. But So I have no problem with the idea that he beat me in some debate, though it's not clear exactly what the debate is to me. Um, What I find funny about it is that Charles, pretty much on every episode or at least every other episode of the Editor's Podcast, as well as when he came on The Remnant, you know, talks at great length about how he thinks Donald Trump is unfit for office and that he's an ignoramus and that um, he's irresponsible. Um, He just puts less emphasis on the fact that a lot of the stuff that is indefensible is just words. It's just stuff that he says. And that's in part because Charlie is a free speech absolutist and he believes more than I do that um, words absent action are not particularly consequential. I just, I flatly disagree with him about that, particularly when they come from the president of the United States. And that's why I think he's wrong about, you know, these he, tweets about how all Trump was doing was expressing hopefulness about hydrochloroquine and all of these kinds of things. His words have real ramifications, and I don't think anybody would deny that, including Charles, if he, you know, if he thought through all of the ways in which his words have real consequences, including on the hydrochloric one thing. But you know, if 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 Donald Trump came out and said we're we're nuking Beijing tomorrow, even if he was just joking, there would be real consequences to that. The president's words matter. But anyway, the 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 point I'm getting at is is that you know. This it is a very weird thing to hear from people who constantly, you know, go on and on about my, you know, my Trump derangement syndrome and all this kind of stuff saying that, you know, Charlie had the better argument. Well, okay. I mean, I disagree. I think Charlie's, I think Charlie and I agree about 85% on all this stuff and where we disagree, I think he's wrong. As Ramesh always likes to say, of course, I think I have all the right positions. If I didn't, they wouldn't be my positions but that's fine to disagree. And Charlie and I do it about all sorts of things, but his position concedes like 85% of my position. And I just think there's something interesting, psychological going on there where you think that like somehow he's the reasonable one and I'm the unreasonable one. Um, when we basically agree about the guy and we agree about the problems that he's creating for the most part, um, and it's, it's, and I, I think part of what it is, is that Charlie's position, which I disagree with, um, gives people more permission to just not care about the things that Trump says and not care that he's an embarrassment. Um, you know, it lets you sort of off the hook and say, yeah, yeah, yeah we've priced that in about Trump. We know that about Trump, but now let's look at the left and, you know it's just a different orientation and the, the whole point of that whole diatribe I just gave you guys about, um, you know, sticking to these rules, which I perfectly happy to concede Charlie agrees with me hundred percent on that. Um, but sticking to these rules is important. Um, uh, part of that point is that you, ha- you can't be, you can't risk. You can't I don't know, risk is the wrong word. You can't simply say, I'm not going to have this argument with the people I mostly agree with when the other side is so awful. It's fine to argue about. And as I did today, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, her ideas are awful. What she wants to do is awful. I point it out all the time. But, you know, the way politics works is by the arguments that you marshal and by holding your own side to account. And if you Don't make the arguments every now and then, and I'm open to the idea, I do it too much. I know I'm going to hear that from people. But if you don't make the arguments to your own side and say, hey, guys, let's not lose our way here. You know, I thought we were supposed to be pro-life about the whole, you know, uh, garment of life and about the people at the end of life and not just the people, not just the fetuses. If, if, If you don't sort of remind people on your own side of what you're actually supposed to believe then you're going to stop believing in it. And I, I, I apologize to the people who are disappointed in me um, for caring about this more than they think I should, but I'm not going to stop. And um, um, and I just think it's sort of fascinating and really kind of funny how um, th- these critics that I keep hearing from um uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to criticize me for, for my, you know, Trump, their interests and blah, 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 blah. It's another thing to hold up Charlie, uh, Charlie Cook as this, um, much more rational, grounded, principled position, um, where the principled position is identical to mine vis-a-vis Trump, um, you know, with the exception of the stuff about his rhetoric, um, And Trump does, and you know, and even there, Charlie largely agrees with me. He just thinks it's less consequential than I do. But um, to hold him up as a sort of as the reasonable position is just is 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 fascinating to me. I mean, it'd be one thing if people were saying, you know, Sean Hannity's position is the reasonable position. Um, I get why you would think I've lost my mind. Um, But the differences between. Charlie and I are almost entirely tactical at this point when it comes to this stuff. And, um, and I think it says more about the people who think that he, you know, has this really distinct position from my own than it says anything about my position or even really Charlie's. Anyway, I just thought it was really interesting. Anyway, I got a hop. Um, I hope people like this again. I think part of it is from being down here, um, and waking up every morning and, looking like I misplaced my anti-technology manifesto or something, um, I, I'm kind of losing track of what I've said before, what podcast I said it on, where I wrote what. It's all becoming sort of mashed together. So if, for all I know, um, I gave the exact same diatribe last week, and if I did, I apologize. I know some people like this, this solo stuff. I'm still really weirdly uncomfortable with it. I mean, I look nuts. You should see the people walking by the car looking at me. Um, and, um, um, but I'm, I'm, all I can say is I'm trying my best. Uh, thanks to Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode. Please visit thedispatch.com. Um, and again, if you can become a paid member, we'd love it. It would be great for us. If you believe in what I'm doing even a little bit, you know, the support matters. a huge deal. Um, and everybody stay safe out there. And wear a mask when appropriate. (laughs) Bye-bye.